The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. We invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Open with me to the book of Luke. Chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. As you're turning to Luke 2, uh, there's a line in that song, or a couple of little lines uh, in that song that I believe kind of sum up the message of Christmas. And those two lines are, Come and worship, do not be afraid. Uh, if, you, if you'll think through the Christmas story, so many times when the angels appeared to Zechariah or to Mary or to the shepherds, their reaction was fear. But it was always told to them, do not be afraid. And I think that's the message of Christmas and ultimately the cross, that because Jesus has come, because Emmanuel, God has come to dwell with us, to be with us, that we can come and worship and not be afraid, that we don't have to shrink back in fear because our sin separates us from Him, but because our sin's been laid on Him, we can come and worship and not be afraid. Isn't that good? So when you tell somebody Merry Christmas, have that in mind. I want to continue to point you to these things of why Christmas is such a big deal. Now, As to Greg's comment about my sweater vest, uh, I'm going to let him just sit on that for a little while. I'll let him sweat that one out for a little bit. Um, So we'll we'll get him at another time. But uh, you'll never know when it's going to come. It's just going to come out of nowhere, and I will slam you hard. All right? So just be ready for that. Um, Love Greg and the relationship we have and Ethan. Uh, It's good to be here, isn't it? These are good days. Um, Let's look at this text together. I want to preach to you the sermon this morning, uh, a big God for little people. A big God for little people. As I was telling somebody that sermon title this morning, uh, someone commented that, hey, some of us are more little than others, you know. And so I'm preaching to your self-esteem this morning and calling us all little, so be glad uh, you're you're little uh, in in comparison to our God. Let's read this together, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now this morning, we're going to look at our big God who is for little people. You probably heard or saw the story this week of the 16-year-old kid in Texas who, who stole beer and went out drinking and driving and, and had an accident and killed several people. And when he was put on trial, the argument was made that he was a victim of affluenza that he had been spoiled as a child, that he had been given everything he wanted, that he was going to private school, and he had just everything that, that, not the private schools, but it was just an exorbitant amount they were paying for this. And and this was their defense, that because he had been given too much, he was spoiled and didn't know really what he was doing, and therefore he was let off the hook. Is that the picture of our God? Is our God, this this God who sits in heaven with everything given to him, and instead of emptying himself, he, he stays there and hides behind this, well, I've always had too much. Or is our God the one who, though he had it all, the worship and the praise of angels throughout all of history, and when creation was made, creation crying out the song of praise to this God. Nevertheless, even though he had everything and more, emptied himself and came to a world that would not know him. I want to show you our big God who is for little people this morning. First off, let's look at our very big God. I won't read it again, but in those first five verses, it just recounts the historical setting of what's taking place. And Caesar Augustus issuing this decree that all the world should be registered. And he's not literally speaking of all the world, but of all the Roman world, the empire of Rome in that day, that they should all be registered. And lo and behold, they should all go to their own town. Not the town where they lived, but the town where they were from. And so it created a lot of travel back and forth. Normally, this would not be a very big story. At first glance, it's simply just describing a historical event. In the words of Lee Corso, though, from College Game Day, not so fast, my friend. You see, over 700 years ago, uh, before the birth of Christ, before this night that we're singing about, Over 700 years before Caesar Augustus made this decree, God made a decree of his own. In the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, God, through that prophet, says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. I want you to feel the weight of this. That probably 730 to 750 years before Jesus is born, before Mary and Joseph make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, God proclaims that the Messiah, the Christ child, would be born in this little town. I don't know about you, but that's pretty amazing. I can't tell you what's going to happen really in the next five minutes. Sometimes I go off script and I don't know what I'm going to say. And my wife says, did you you plan to say that? And I... Nope, comes up from within somewhere. I don't know, you know. But 700 and 
let's say 40 years or so beforehand, God says that Christ will be born in Bethlehem. The problem is that they don't live in Bethlehem. They live in Nazareth, which is 80 miles away. In a day before cars and trains and planes and all those things, God has an issue. Somehow, God has to get a pregnant woman who is at the end of her term to ride a donkey 80 miles into the mountains of Judea to a specific tiny little town of Bethlehem. Now let me ask you this. Any of you who have ever dealt with a pregnant woman, particularly at the end of her term, how would you go about this? How would you get her to get on the back of a donkey and ride 80 miles? Some of you would say, well, I wouldn't. I wouldn't touch that one. I wouldn't go anywhere near that one, right? What method does God use? God, in his bigness, decides, I'll just move the heart of the most powerful man in the world. God decides that he'll go about it this way. Do you think Caesar spent much time thinking about this little town of Bethlehem? I don't think so. He's the most powerful man in the world. I don't think he cares or thinks too much about this little sleepy town of Bethlehem. All he really knows about it is, let's find out how many people are there so that we can collect some taxes from these people. Do you think Caesar, the most powerful man in this pagan empire of the world of his day, do you think he spends much time poring over the scriptures, the religious writings of a captured people to find out what their God is up to in the world? I don't think so. I think he's oblivious and he's clueless about the Word of God. He's ignorant to it. Yet, without knowing it, Caesar Augustus is about to play a very crucial role in God's plan to bring the Messiah to Bethlehem. See, Caesar Augustus, um, Caesar Augustus is the emperor of Rome. He didn't start out as the emperor of Rome. His grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. Before Julius Caesar was killed, Julius Caesar adopted him. At that time, his name was Octavius. And Octavius was adopted by Julius Caesar, and Julius Caesar made him his heir. Well, upon the death of Julius Caesar, Octavius begins to assume this position, and he uses the fact that he's the heir of Julius Caesar to gain power. And Octavius, at the time, aligns himself temporarily with Mark Antony, and, and he begins to build power for himself and develop this empire from within. But lo and behold, somewhere along the way, I'll leave out a lot of details, but along the way, Mark Antony, who had married Octavius' sister, decides to divorce Octavius' sister to continue his affair with Cleopatra. Well, this angers Octavius, and so they began to war against one another. And here's the long story made short. Eventually, Octavius defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And he becomes the sole ruler in this Roman Empire. He defeats their forces and becomes this sole ruler. Octavius, at this point, at somewhere along the way, the Senate gives him the name Augustus. The, the name Augustus means revered or honored or esteemed. Caesar Augustus is probably one of the most crucial, uh, important figures in this history of the Roman Empire, probably the most important. He left behind on his death a great legacy of peace and prosperity in the Roman world. 
He he was known for building the the Roman world or the Greco-Roman society. He was the one who ushered in the the Pax Romana, which was the, the peace between the nationalities that were captured within the Roman Empire. He was known for wise administration and his commitment to public works. His road system that he built largely was used and, and, and was beneficial to those early Christian missionaries to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. He was well esteemed. On his deathbed, he claimed that he found Rome in brick, but he left it in marble. He was so respected that when he died, his loyal subjects deified him. They made him God and they began to worship him. This is the most powerful man in the world. You say, why do you give us all those details, those historical facts about this man? I give you those to show you that this is not just anybody. This is not someone who's sympathetic to the God of these little people. He's not aware of what's going on in the world. He simply is moved. He simply one day thinks of his own free will that he's going to make this decree that all the world should go to their hometowns and be taxed. As big as this world ruler was, he was no match for God. Proverbs 21.1 gives us a clue as to what God does here. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Think about that. I remember as a kid growing up in the mountains of East Tennessee, and there was a, it was a creek right behind my grandparents' house. And we used to go to Mamaw and Papaw's every Sunday for, after church. We'd go up there and spend all afternoon. And me and the cousins would run all over the hillside up there and get into all sorts of trouble. Um, but that little creek that ran behind the house, we would play in that creek, and we would catch crawdads and all these things. But one of my favorite things to do was to take rocks from where they were and move them and stack them up and build dams and, and try to redirect the creek. And I could do that after a little bit of effort with a little bit of time, moving these rocks to change the flow of this creek. Now, eventually, it would come crashing down, and when the next storm came, and, and everything would sort of ride itself But if I could do that on a Sunday afternoon with a creek, that's the picture here of what God is doing in the heart of the world rulers. Particularly in this man's heart, he's using Caesar Augustus like he's just this little creek that runs behind the the, the house of my grandparents. He just turns it wherever he will. And they don't even know it. They're big in their own estimation. They're big in the estimation of others, but they are nothing compared to our God. As impressive and revered as Augustus was, there was one who was still more august than him. At a moment in history, without even being aware, Caesar Augustus is making what seems to him to be this decree of his own free will. Little does he know that God's turning his heart like water. In our day, in a day where it seems that government is getting bigger all the time, and that little people like you and I are simply at their mercy, it would help us to remember, to let the Christmas story remind us that our God is bigger. That, it is, that we're not left simply to the mercy of those who are godless and without Him, but instead our God is on His throne and He is bringing about what He wills to come to be. 
Maybe today you're here and you're facing a very big problem in your own life. Uh, Maybe there's an unbelieving spouse in your household. And it's big. And it burdens you. and, And you worry over it. And you think they will never change. They will never come to know the Lord. Let me remind you, the Christmas story, let it remind you that our God's bigger. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with a wayward child. Or you're up against unemployment or cancer or infertility or trying to hold on to your marriage and keep it together. Or you're, you're questioning, how am I going to pay for college? Or you're running through things like now, how, how am I going to care for my parents who are aging and, and there's some things that need to happen? And all of these things are big, and they are big to you. And I don't want to downplay those, but I simply want to say to you, this is not the overarching message of the gospel that that God is about making your life what you want it to be, but I would simply remind you that God is bigger than all those things. That there is a story that is going on behind the scenes that oftentimes we lose sight of. That our God is huge. That God wielded an entire empire to bring about His will, to keep His word. What He said 740 years ago, He meant it. What we looked at last week when we went through Genesis 3 and and we see that even hundreds of years, thousands of years ahead of time, there in the garden where God says, one day the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. God meant it and God would carry it out. If he would wield an entire empire to keep his word, we can rest assured today, Christmas should remind us that he will also keep his word of what he's promised to us today. John Piper says this, Do not think because you experience adversity that the hand of the Lord is shortened. It's not our prosperity, but our holiness that he seeks with all his heart. And to that end, he rules the whole world. John Piper goes on, and I heard him say, I'll just paraphrase what he said, God may not always be efficient, but he's big, and he likes to show off. Rest assured that our God is big. Secondly, I want not only for you to see our very big God, but I want you to see that our very, our very big God made himself very small. Made himself very small. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, when we read this, after just reading those first five verses, we realize there's something out of place. Don't you think that if if God can turn the heart of Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, just like it's water in a creek, don't you think he could make provision for there to be a hotel room? What's going on here? In the middle of turning the heart of Caesar, did God forget to make the reservation? Did the innkeeper mess it up? Or could it be that we are supposed to see it this way? That there not being room for them in the end was intentional. We're supposed to see in this that our very big God who could come in and do whatever He wanted to do instead makes Himself small for the sake of those who are small. I 
When we look over Jesus' life, there are so many things that we could say that he could have done, aren't there? I did this as I was studying and preparing for this message. I just simply walked through the book of Matthew, just flipping pages and looking at the headings and just reminding myself of the life of Jesus. And as I walked through there, I just came across thing after thing after thing that Jesus could have done but didn't for our sake. Now, listen, I want to list just a few of these for you. He, He could have been born to a wealthy family, but he wasn't. The Bible says here he's laid in a manger. No place for them in the inn. He grows up in obscurity in the home of this carpenter. His dad disappears off the scene somewhere along the way. They don't have a lot. He could have been born into a wealthy family, but he wasn't. He could have turned the stones to bread or thrown himself down from the pinnacle of the temple or bowed down at the feet of Satan. All of this would have kept him from going to the cross, but he didn't. He could have called a better bunch of disciples, don't you think? Weren't these guys a bunch of bumbling, stumbling, I won't won't say idiots, but they were not far from it, right, at times? Arguing over who would be first, sending their mother to say, hey, hey, when, when you get there, put my sons on, you know, I mean, couldn't he have probably chosen a better bunch of disciples? But he didn't. He could have stayed away from the crowds. Aren't there times in your life when you just want to say, I, just, I don't want to be around anybody. I just want to get in. I, I, just want to, I just want to go home and just want to be comfortable. But Jesus repeatedly went back out to the crowds where they pulled at him. He fed them. He cast out demons. He did all of these things. He could have recoiled from the leper, from the blind from the lame, from the demon-possessed, from the dead, but he didn't. He could have lashed out at the Pharisees and the scribes. How many times, if you and I were in his shoes, would we have just lashed out and let them have it, just unleashed the, the, the power of God if we had it on them? He could have lashed out at them, but he didn't. He could have refused the little children. I love kids. I I love the fact that last Sunday when I stepped down off this platform, immediately two of our children came running to me to show me things that they had made for me. I love that. But there are times when I don't want to be around kids. I love you guys. I hope you know I love you guys. But there are times when we all just, we're like, I don't want any more kids pulling on me. Right, parents? Jesus could have refused the little children, but what did he say? Let the little children come to me. Jesus could have avoided paying taxes. I mean, he's God. He probably could have gotten away with it, don't you think? But instead, he sends and and pulls the coin out of the mouth of the fish to make sure that he's obeying the law. He could have avoided taxes, but he didn't. He could have called out Judas. Could have outed him right there at the table. Instead of saying, the one who dips his hand, he could have said, look, this dude's a snake. Right here in the midst of us all, do you know what he's getting ready to do to me? But he didn't. He could have called 10,000 angels in Gethsemane and certainly at Golgotha to come to his aid and put the whole thing to an end, but he didn't. He could have written off Peter. When Peter denies him three times after, after bragging and saying, even if everyone else 
abandons you and runs away. I won't. I'll be there to the end with you, Jesus. And then denies him three times. And Jesus could have written him off, but instead Jesus looks at him and says, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And recommissions him as a follower and an apostle. You see, if we look through the life of Jesus, we look and we see this big God who turns the heart of Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man in the world, like it's a stream of water, yet he comes in a very small way. Doesn't even have a hospital suite. Has no team of doctors and nurses on standby. He comes into this world through the womb of a little virgin girl and he is placed in a manger, the feeding trough of animals. Imagine the smell in that place. That was one of the things. That's, that's a memory from my grandparents. I can't get out of my head either. Playing around the barn and the smells that were associated with the barn. We'd come back down to the house after playing in that barn lot and our parents would say, no, 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 not in the house. Get out of the house. There was a reason for that. They used to tell us, you, you cut your foot. And what they meant is we stepped in something. And this is where Jesus was born. This very big God made himself so small. And maybe, don't you think, that this is intentional. That we are to see in, the, in this, the no room in the end, the placed in the manger among the animals, we are to see this as intentional. That this is the posture with which, with which Jesus would live his life. Maybe we're to understand just how small God himself made himself. Luke 9.58 Jesus, when someone wanted to come after him and follow him, he said, Are you sure you want to do that? Because foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. John 1.10, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. Imagine that. The one who spoke and flung stars into their place. The one who spoke and divided the land. The one who spoke and formed and breathed into Adam, life itself was rejected by the world that he created. Philippians 2, 6-7, though, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with a thing to be grasped or held onto or hoarded to himself, but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Imagine, just try to wrap your head around that for a second. For the God, the second member of the triune God, to take on the form of man. To be born as an infant, to grow up as a child, to go through the years of teenagehood. To become a young adult, to work a job. To know what it is to, to weep. To know what it is to, to laugh. To know what it is to feel pain. All of those things because he emptied himself and made himself nothing, taking the form of a human being. Mark 10, 45, he sums up his ministry when he says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to 
serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Our very big God made himself very small. Here's the third point of this sermon. To save very unlikely people. To save very unlikely people. Our very big God made himself very small to save very unlikely people. Verses 8 through 14, I won't read them again. But it tells the account of the shepherds out in the field. They're keeping watch over their flock by night. When all of a sudden an angel appears to them and, and begins to announce to them the birth of the Messiah. The glory of the Lord shone around them, it says. And they were filled with great fear. If you were living in Israel at the time, you were, and you were going to script the birth of Jesus, you were going to roll out the, the, the publicity of this thing, who would you tell first? That this one who was promised so many years ago has finally come. Who would you make sure was getting an invitation? Probably you would say, well, I would certainly in Israel, I would tell the high priest and I would make sure that the scribes were there, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. I would make sure that, that all, the, 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 all the priests, everyone, they were all there because this is a big fanfare. We'll make sure all of them are aware and all of them know. But God doesn't do it that way. God rarely does things the way you and I would do them. Instead, he chooses or he chose to reveal the Christ to one of the most unlikely groups of people on the planet in Israel at the time, to the shepherds. Listen to what John MacArthur says about the shepherds. He says, shepherds were near the bottom of the social ladder. They were uneducated and unskilled, increasingly viewed as dishonest, unreliable, and unsavory characters. So much so that they were not even allowed to testify in court. Because sheep required care seven days a week, he goes on, shepherds were unable to fully comply with the man-made Sabbath regulations developed by the Pharisees. As a result, they were perpetually in this state of breaking the ceremonial law, so thus they were unclean. So they're, they're untrustworthy, they're unskilled, they're unsavory, they're going to lie. They're unclean. These are people at the bottom of the ladder. And this is who God reveals that the Christ has come. Even with this view of shepherds, God chose to reveal himself to them. Why? Because that's exactly the type of people that he came to save. When Jesus stood later in his adulthood when he stands in the temple in Nazareth and he takes the scroll and he reads from the scroll, he reads these verses. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord, uh, the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, all of us, if we're honest, we see ourselves somewhere in there, don't we? We all fit that mold somewhere. We're all brokenhearted to some extent. We're all held captive to our sin. We're all poor in spirit. But those are the types of people Jesus came to save. We're all there, but there are some that won't ever see it or won't ever admit it. They're the self-righteous. They refuse to admit that they fit in this bunch. 
Well, what exactly? If, if Jesus comes to this, this ragtag, bottom of the food chain bunch of shepherds and reveals himself to them, what exactly does he tell them? Well, in verses 10 through 14, he says, The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, these guys, they weren't used to hearing a lot of good news. Usually it was something like, you know, well, Freddie the sheep has gone off again, so Bob, it's your turn. You go get him, right? They weren't used to hearing good news. Their life was mundane, and it was in the gutter. And the angel says to them, I've got good news of great joy for you. For all people, this is going to be for all people, not just the religious upper crust. There is a Savior who is Christ the Lord who has been born. And this was the reason for him to be born. This is not just describing a little bit about him. This is the reason he was born to be a Savior. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now last week, I went to great lengths as we went through Genesis 3 to show you that, that our greatest problem is sin. That sin is the reason for all that's wrong in this world. Sometimes we experience the, the personal consequences of our own personal sin. But even beyond that, when we look at, at catastrophes in the world and great tragedy in the world and great disease and all these things in the world, it all goes back to sin. The rebellion of man in the garden that's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. And I would tell you today that, that I want to give you great hope because the answer to that great problem is not 12 steps of anything. It's not rehab. It's not more Christmas spirit. It's not singing loudly for all to hear. It's Jesus. And this is what was announced to them. Our very big God made himself very small to save very unlikely people. These shepherds are meant to show us that just like they were the most unlikely people to receive the announcement of the birth of the Christ, so are we. But he is a savior for all who will see themselves as undeserving and unlikely and turn from their own sin and turn from their own self-righteousness and trust him as their only hope of salvation, being made right, being forgiven. We're just as unlikely to receive the gospel of salvation as the shepherds. Like them, we are dishonest, unreliable, and unsavory characters. Nevertheless, God has brought this good news to your ears today. And what will you do with it? How do you respond to this kind of news? Well, I would tell you that the response of the shepherds gives us a great clue as to how you should today respond to this same news. The first thing they did is they take him at his word. Look at verses 15 and 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And when they went, they found it just like the angels said. Joseph was there, Mary was there, and there was the baby who was wrapped in his swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They take him at his word. And I would tell you today, if you're here and you are not trusting in Christ, 
That there is one hope for you. There has been one Savior that has been born. There is one name whereby men must be made right before God. And his name is Jesus. And you can't, you can't work your way into this. You've got to simply take him at his word and trust. Rest in this news that is good news for all people. Secondly, not only did they take him at his word and go and see, but they began to make him known. Once, once this news has been revealed to you and you take God at his word and you receive by faith the gospel, you can't help but to make it known. You can't help but to, to share this with other people. If today, I, I would venture to say that if today one of you had bought a lottery ticket and, and had won that $400 plus million jackpot this week, I would venture to say that if you were here this morning that you would not keep that to yourself. You won't believe what happened to me. I didn't think it would happen. I just bought this little ticket, but I won. I won. Look, the debt's gone on the church. I'll take care of that, right? You'd be telling everybody. Have we not received a bigger jackpot than $400 million could ever touch in the gift of Jesus? Should it not cause us to do exactly what they do in verse 17? When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Make it known. You're going to be this season, in just the next few days, you're going to be around all sorts of people. Work parties and family parties and all these things going on. And there are going to be people in every one of those settings that are going to be celebrating Christmas but have no idea why they celebrate Christmas. To them it is a holiday. And you have the answer for why it is great joy. When we sing joy to the world, we know. So tell them. Make it known. And third, the third thing they did, they responded to this news in a third way. They began to praise God in the, in the everyday outworking of their life. I want you to notice that in verse 20, it says that they returned. They went back to keeping sheep. They went back to the field. But, but it changed the way they kept sheep in that field. They weren't there just in that field with Really, you know, just keeping sheep. Now they're in the field keeping sheep as those who have seen the Christ and taken God at His word. And they've got to make this known, and now they're praising God for what they have received. There is, there is no such thing as joyless faith. It's impossible to have faith and receive this Christ and not have joy in your heart. I'm not talking about that you have to be happy and just giddy and get on everyone's nerves. But there ought to be a joy that's deep down in you that it is residual and it lasts regardless of what goes on in your life. You can receive the worst news in your life, but it can't take your joy because of what you've received. And in the everyday outworking of keeping sheep or whatever you do, there is a praise to this God. We are the recipients of this news. Our very big God has made himself very small 
to save the most unlikely of people. So let us take him at his word. Let us tell all who will listen. And let us rejoice that he has come. Let's pray. Jesus, we stand this morning in awe of the fact that you have come, that you have made yourself small. Lord, we are nothing. What is man that you are mindful of him? Yet in your love, you have come. You have made yourself nothing. You've emptied yourself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You've gone to the cross. It wasn't just the manger. It was the cross. You were placed into the tomb, and you came out of the tomb alive, raised after three days, so that we might be forgiven, that we might be plucked from our hopelessness and saved So God, my prayer today is that if there are those in this room who are not trusting you, that God, today, that you would open their blind eyes and move on their hearts. And God, that you would bring them to life and that they might call on you as Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to think about this. And one of the things that may come out of this is as you're thinking about this very big God who made himself very small to save the most unlikely of people, you may come to grips with the fact that you really are unlikely and undeserving. And as Ethan leads us to sing, you may respond with joy as you sing. Just thankfulness for this. But maybe you're also here and you don't know this joy because you haven't trusted. You're not trusting Christ. And today I want to invite you. I'm going to go right down here on the front row. I won't come back up and stand and look at you. I'm not going to try to plead for you to come. That's not the intention. It's not for you to come here. But if today you sense God turning your heart like he's turned the heart of the kings, like water toward himself, then I'll be here and I'd love to talk with you. You could come talk to me. I'll be glad to answer any of your questions. I'll be glad to walk with you beyond this day if if we need to and begin a dialogue where we talk over questions. Maybe you're still skeptical, but you sense God doing something and you just want to investigate or step a little closer to that. I'd love to start that conversation with you. Maybe maybe you're ready. Maybe maybe you know, hey, there's only one response to this and I've got to take God at his word. I'm going to trust him today and I'm going to come by faith and receive Christ is my only hope of salvation, then I'd love to talk with you. Maybe you're here today and you say, this is the church where we believe God's leading us to be a part of. We want to join this church. We want to lock arms to serve him and follow him here. Whatever it is that God is leading you to today, I'm just going to invite you to respond. Whatever it is, that you would just say yes to him and that you would respond in faith. He's the very big God who has made himself very small to save the most unlikely of people. So what will your response be? This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.